Well, good morning again, everybody. It's good to be with you. We are in this series where we're talking about relationships. And I mean all kinds of relationships, whether it's your marriage relationship, your relationship to your children or your parents or your boss or your neighbor. I mean, our lives are just made up of a bunch of relationships. And every relationship that you have has a climate to it, which means when you walk in to a room, you bring a certain climate. And some days it's better and some days it's worse, but there's always a baseline climate to all of our relationships. And here's what we know, that climate dictates the forecast of any relationship. You know this because we said last week in Arizona, the climate's warm in the summer. So you know in July, it's going to be 115 degrees and not just warm, but hot. And there's certain relationships that you can just predict in your life. For instance, if you have a friendship that's distant and cold and you know out of touch, you can predict that the forecast is going to be pretty distant in the future. And because the challenge for us is that we don't know what relationship we bring to the room and we don't know what climate we bring in that relationship, it's kind of hard to see ourselves in it. And so we posed a really challenging question last week that some of you just jumped on. We asked you to ask the question, what's it like to be on the other side of me? And some of you reported back that, listen, I asked my spouse this, what's it like to be on the other side of me? And my spouse asked me this, and it was, a, it was an incredible conversation. And it must have gone pretty well because we didn't need to call in an army of counselors for the people in our church. Now, here's a challenge for some of you. Some of you thought, I'm not doing that. I'm either too nervous or too scared. I don't have the guts to do it. There's still time for you to ask this question. And what we find is that when we ask questions, about our relationships and our emotions, we get insight that we would not get all by ourselves. So you have an opportunity to ask that question this week. But today, we want to build on that question. And we want to talk about a climate problem in almost every relationship that we have that we think we can you know, work on, overcome, and maybe heal totally. And this you know, climate challenge in our relationships is connected to who we are, our name, and our identity. Now, you know, it is great to have someone say your name out loud in a positive way. Um, a couple years ago, I was at a big conference with a whole bunch of church people. There's about 3,000 people in the room, and a friend of mine was hosting on stage, and he said my name in front of all these people, and I wasn't even paying attention until I heard my name said, and it just caught my attention, and I tried to hide it, but it made me smile from ear to ear because I was, you know, publicly recognized in front of lots and lots of people, and it's just something we love to have happen to us. In the same way, when someone forgets our name, it feels a little like a ding to our soul, For me, it's a challenge when I walk through Walmart because there's lots of people. I will recognize their faces, but I don't know their names, and I feel so bad about it. But you know how it is. When someone forgets your name, it's like, don't you even know who I am? And we all have that tension in our lives. And some of us, you know, we've got some identity things from our past that have chased us into our future. Like maybe a high school coach once said something about you in front of the other players and about your name, and it just still sits with you. Maybe it was a middle school coach. Heck, maybe it was your first grade t-ball coach that when you were running the bases he said something and you've never forgotten it and has bothered you all these years because it affects your identity and who you are for some people identity is all wrapped up in their success and you know success is a great thing but you get in this place where you think if I don't have more success and continue to success then I'm going to lose who I am I'm going to lose my identity for other people it's not success it's failure Maybe a failure of a business, might be failure of a job, maybe it's even a failure of a marriage. You may think about a child you have and think, man, as a parent, I'm not sure I succeeded in, in my parenting. And that chases us around the rest 
of our lives. For some of us, especially the men that are paying attention, you know, what we have, what we drive, what we live in can certainly give us our identity in negative ways. Um, several years ago, my grandfather passed away and he left me this truck. My grandfather, we called him Poppy, was an incredible man. He passed away at 92 years old and he left me this 1985 S10 pickup truck. Now, I had always wanted a truck, right? Always wanted a truck. And so when he left this to me, I mean, it was in pristine condition. I thought, this is incredible. Now I have a truck. It doesn't matter that it's about the size of a Dodge Neon. It's two-wheel drive. It has a four-cylinder engine in it. It's still a truck. And so I love to drive this truck around until I would park in a parking space and this guy would pull up his truck next to my truck. And all of a sudden, I didn't feel so good about the truck that I drove, which is silly, but it's kind of the instinct we all have. Now, I just want to say to the guy who drives this truck or this kind of truck, you've got to be compensating for something. Just keep that in mind. And guys, I just sold you out to your wives and girlfriends. Sorry about that. But you're compensating for something, right? But there's just that thing in all of us when insecurity comes about who we are, or what we have, or where we've been, it can get the best of us. And that's true because we know this, that insecurity infects the climate of our relationships. When insecurity gets in our relationships, it's like a disease in them. And you've experienced this, haven't you? You have been around the insecure boss that is hard to work for. You've been around the insecure spouse that's hard to love, and you've been around the insecure friend that's hard to help. You know, it's tough because my boss is so insecure, maybe you've said this, that if he doesn't get the last say or anybody questions him, he just freaks out. Or my, my spouse is insecure and I can never figure out how to love him right or love her right and it just turns things inside out. And you got a friend that they're so insecure, they won't let you help them in anything or they want so much help that you never can do enough for them and their insecurity just kind of rolls out. Now, my guess is when I talk about insecure people in your life, it's easy to name the people you'd say, they're insecure and they're insecure. But here's the truth of it for all of us. Everyone is insecure. All of us. Now, you may say, hey, holistically, Matt, I'm not an insecure person, but I'll bet you have insecurities. And when those insecurities are pushed or nudged or aggravated, they pop out of you because I know they pop out of me. And what do we do with all this insecurity in our world? Now, one of the answers our culture has come up with, and we're not against culture at all, has been this idea of self-esteem. And the idea of self-esteem is that, you know, if, if we can produce it, speak into it, have more self-esteem, then our lives will go in a better way. So we would say this, that self-esteem is the cure for insecurity. It's a really popular thing for us to talk about. And this has been so popular that the business world and the marketing world has caught on to this because they realize if they can address our insecurity and then help us figure out how to overcome it, especially with a product, then they can sell a lot of product. And so what you see in our marketing world, in our advertising world, is them playing on all of our insecurity because they're very, very smart people. And a great example of this is a Super Bowl ad from 1997 that dealt with, you know, Dove Bar Soap. And I want to take a minute and just show you this as an example of insecurity and how we use this in our world. So check this out. Makes you crazy and you've taken all you can bear. You call me up because you 
It's an incredible commercial, isn't it? I mean, when that little girl says, I hate my freckles, or I want different color of hair, I want to look differently, I mean, everything in me wants to say, yes, I want to help you any way I can. And then they're smart enough to add that incredible, beautiful song and those incredible images. And then the line of, let's change their minds, let's change their self-esteem. And I'm not saying that's all bad, and I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just not sure... You can change somebody in the right way by just telling them they can look different from the outside in. And I'm certainly not sure you can do it with a bar of soap because what about the stuff on the inside? What about the stuff that's inside of us that causes us to, you know, doubt and be insecure and bring toxins into our relationships? Have you ever ever watched an interview with a really famous person? And they have everything in the world and they get to the point in the interview where they just almost break down and say, listen, my life's a mess. I don't have what I really wanted, and yet we would say you have everything. You see, I think self-esteem is a little like a five-hour energy drink. It's a boost. It feels good, but it eventually runs out because it addresses what's on the outside. And what if we could address what is on the inside of us? So our goal today is trying to figure out what is the answer to insecurity. And by the end, what I hope we can do is fill in this blank, that this blank is the cure for insecurity. And if you just hang on for a few minutes, we're going to give you a word to put in that blank. Through the eyes of some people that understood what security really looked like and where it really came from. And so to fill in this blank, I want to draw on the words and the wisdom of a man named Paul. You may know him as the Apostle Paul. He wrote over half the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul had incredible reasons to feel secure in his life and at the same time have incredible reasons to feel insecure because of what he had done and the moves he has made. And so the Apostle Paul sits down and he writes a letter to a church, a group of Christians in a place called Philippi, to help pass on what Jesus had taught him about security and where it came from. So let me, let me read part of this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to this little church 2,000 years ago. Paul says, We who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, Paul says, listen, my life has become all about Jesus. And I don't put any confidence in my flesh. In other words, I got some labels. And you might say they're good labels. You might say they're bad labels. But I don't count those labels worth anything to me anymore. He addresses the very thing we've been talking about. Our identity, our labels, what we've achieved or not achieved in every essence of our lives. He goes on. He goes, though... I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And now Paul starts to jab a little bit. You think you have a reason to be confident in you? I have more. I'm just telling you. This reminds um, me of the conversations I have with my kids that I'm always in the middle of. And the conversations revolve around who was the best high school athlete, which no one cares about. But we have that conversation. It usually ends up between my daughter Megan and I talking about who has the most awards and the most medals. And she wins because she was a track star. And you know, you can get four medals per track event, which is not fair. So, so Megan, I'm just calling you out. That's not a valid reason. But we have that conversation. And Paul just is simply saying, listen, put your stuff on paper. I have more medals than anybody I've ever met. And they undermined my own happiness. And then he gives us the list of the things he accomplished. Now, this list may not mean a lot to us today, but 2,000 years ago, this list that he goes through meant the world to his readers. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. And what he's saying is, I followed the rules. 
I was from the right nation, and I was from a family that was important and they had significance. A Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, which means I was at the top of the pecking order. Then he addresses this. As for zeal, like enthusiasm, passion, getting after it, persecuting the church. Oh, by the way, did I mention that I thought I was being a right religious person by chasing down Jesus followers before I became a Jesus follower and I killed Jesus followers? That's the kind of zeal I had. Security, insecurity, man, they're all running together. As for righteousness, listen to this statement. Based on the law, I was faultless. Based on following the law, I was faultless. I was on my game. But this is what I discovered. That whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So if you take my resume of all my good stuff and my bad stuff, let's just talk about the good stuff for a minute. I look back. And I count them all as loss. At best, they might have made me a little bit of a better person. At worst, it's where my confidence was. It was where my faith was. It's how I thought I could get to God by doing good things. And by the way, did I mention in my pursuit of trying to do righteous, lawful things, I was killing God's very people? Paul goes, it was all loss. None of it measured up. None of it satisfied who I was. I love what he says next. He said, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that little phrase, surpassing worth, I think had to mean so much to Paul. He would look at you and look at me and said, I thought I was lost. And I thought I could never be redeemed for all that I've done. And then I realized that Jesus looked at me and said, that is my son. That is my child, and he has worth beyond measure. It's the same thing God says to you when we come into relationship with him. It's kind of like if you take a $100 bill, and before it gets turned into a $100 bill, it's just a small piece of paper. It's worthless. It's junk. But when you put that stamp of a $100 bill by the federal government, it's worth something that's important. And I might say, gosh, you know, before I came into relationship with Jesus, I was just a scrap of paper. I was just refuge. I was just garbage. But when Jesus said, this is my son, I became valuable. I became worth something because I was a child of God. Paul saw this so clearly. He said, the worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Everything I had, everything I accomplished, all to the side and led who Jesus is, because Jesus was so much better. He answered the question in my life. And Paul walks through this incredible passage of Scripture, and then he says something to us that's pretty famous. It's like the second most Googled Scripture verse in all of the Bible, and it's something we can hang on to. It's really, it's a gift from God. Paul says, in light of all that, I can do all things, like all things, through Christ who strengthens me. Now, when I was in high school, I would say this before every time we went out on a wrestling match. Because I would look at a guy across the room and he would be this gnarly, bulked up, nasty looking dude that I was a little intimidated by. And I'd say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then I prayed. He wasn't praying the same prayer. So my prayer would trump his prayer and I would win the wrestling match. But it, truthfully, it served me pretty well. But probably not because the prayer, I just was an okay wrestler because I don't think Paul is saying listen you can win all your matches and you can run all the races and you can be successful at everything through Christ because sometimes we know as Christians we face incredible hardships like the one we're in as a country right now so I don't think this is an I can do verse as much as it is through Christ another translation says in Christ 
And this is the gift that Jesus gives to us. He says, in me, you're something special. Through me, you have an identity that is accepted. It's a brand new label. That means every day you can wake up and you can look at your past failures and your past mistakes and all the places you didn't measure up and all the nervousness you have about, can I still be successful? Can I continue my streak? And whether you are or not, you can know that your label is a child of God. Paul would look at you and he would look at I. And he would say, you do not have to be insecure anymore because you belong to a God that created the world and he loves you. And this is important because what we know is that the heart of insecurity is a fear of rejection. Listen, my friends, the reason I am insecure some days is I'm afraid people are going to reject me. And so are you. And rejection is a powerful thing. You walk into your business, your office, your workplace tomorrow or whenever you get back to it, being rejected by the people around you is powerful. And it can make us act crazy. You might be sitting next to your spouse and you've not been loving them well or letting them love you well. And maybe at the heart of it is I'm afraid to be rejected because I've been rejected before and it is no fun and it makes me feel like I am worthless. And what if there is an answer for rejection? What if there's an answer for insecurity? And I think what Paul is leaning towards is acceptance is the cure for insecurity. Acceptance is what you fill in the blank as a cure for insecurity. And here's the deal. We're going to go through a lifetime of human beings rejecting us and not accepting us. It is just part of the gig. That's why it's so hard to be a middle schooler because there's so many instances where we're rejected and not accepted. But in the middle of all those moments, we have an opportunity for God to say, I accept you. You're my child. And I'm not freaked out about all the things you didn't do or the things you did wrong or where you have not measured up. I just need you to know I accept you. And this is a game changer because the climate of your relationships and mine improve when you see you as Christ or God sees you. So here's my question. Do you see you as God sees you? And this is a little bit tricky because when you ask that question, you, you might be drawn to, yeah, God sees all my mess and my darkness, and my sin, and my mistakes? And the answer to that is, yeah, he does. But he doesn't see all that stuff in light of Jesus, because Jesus lives in you and me when we follow Jesus. Listen, if you're not a Christian, the invitation is always follow Jesus, follow Jesus, because he loves you. But if you follow Jesus already, God doesn't see all that. He sees Jesus in you. It is a powerful thing. And when you see Jesus in you, the way God sees you, It frees you up to love and to be generous and to give and to serve in amazing, amazing ways. It's why I think Paul said, I can do all things. Paul, what all things do you mean? You mean like, you know, make a lot of money and win wrestling matches and be a track star? Nah, not really. But I can love really well and I can forgive really well. And I can serve my wife, my kids, my spouse. I can show up to work and be okay with the people I work with and love them, even though I feel a little nervous about it. Well, Paul, how can you do all those things? I can do all things through Christ, in Christ, because of Christ, who strengthens me. Now, I want to give some examples of maybe how this looks in your world, but First, I want to talk about my world just a little bit because I'm typically, I don't view myself as an insecure person, but I have some insecurities. For instance, I've been doing what I do for like 20 plus years now, 
And getting up on stage can make you a little insecure when you talk to people and you hope people show up and they kind of like what you say. And well, you know, pastors love to say, it's not about my sermons, but we all know it is a little bit, so there's some insecurity around there. And I've kind of worked with that over the years, but my insecurity has gone to a different place now that we're not all meeting in the room. And the tension for me is, listen, when I walk off stage, it's to an empty room. And I am showing up on video screens over and over and over, and it's not by my choice. It's just the world we live in. And I'm glad we get to do that, but it has created some insecurity in me that I've never faced before. For instance, I do exactly what I tell my kids not to do. Don't post stuff on social media and watch how many people like it or how many people share it or how many people comment on it. And so I start counting people likes and their shares. And I'm like, oh, it's good or it's bad or I'm good or it's bad. It's so easy to get caught up in that, and there creates insecurity in me. Not to mention, again, I'm on video screens more than I ever have been, and I watch myself, and I think, if I was 25, I'd be really comfortable with this. But I just turned 50 years old, and I got this thing under my chin that I know if I quit eating Oreos, it would go away, but I don't really want to quit eating Oreos, but I don't want this thing under my chin, and it makes me feel insecure. And I got some gray in my hair, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm getting old, and everybody can see it, and I can create insecurity in me. Just like you have insecurity. And so i got to figure that. i got to deal with that in my life because we may not be out of this moment anytime soon. So here's what I'm going to do today in light of what Paul says. I'm in Christ. I'm God's son. And so when I'm done speaking, I'm going to walk off the stage and the room is empty. But in my mind, I'm just going to believe, because I believe this is true, that Jesus is sitting on the front row. And that Jesus is going to look at me and say, hey, that is my son. That is my child. Didn't he do a great job? I know his jokes weren't funny, and he wasn't even that engaged, but I don't even care about how engaging he was. That is my child. And I'm going to just pray this prayer for me today as I struggle with my insecurity, that Jesus would say to me, I want you to worry much more about what I say about you than what anybody else says. It is the cure for rejection. It's a cure for insecurity. So that, that's kind of what I'm working through. I, I think about the young women in our world and if you're a woman uh, watching online, I always am hesitant to speak in, you know, in any direction of women. But I think about my daughter that's grown up in the culture we have over the last 10 years. She's 20 years old now. And I think about what she has to face every day in seeing what a woman's supposed to look like in our culture. Now, when we were growing up, you would see that if you went to the grocery store and you went to the grocery store checkout line, you'd see all the magazines with incredibly beautiful models that were the perfect shape, the perfect hair color, the perfect skin. But now you don't even have to go to the supermarket. You just pull up their phone. My daughter has to look at a million images a day of, a day of other women with perfect skin through the perfect filter, who are depriving their bodies of the right nutrition so they can be skinny enough and athletic enough and have the perfect hair. And that's what we measure beauty in in our world. And I look at my daughter and I say, you are so beautiful. You do not have to be like that to be beautiful. And I think the other messages we send our daughters, our young women in our culture, like, hey, let's turn on a TV show where there's one bachelor and there's 40 single women and the bachelor gets to spend 30 minutes with each of these 40 women. And if you're pretty enough and you're funny enough and engaging enough, you make the cut. And all the other women that aren't funny, pretty, and engaging enough, they just get cut. You're out. You're rejected. You don't get a rose. And then the bachelor sleeps with five or six of them. And then he whittles them down to two. And then he puts them through their paces. Then he decides, hey, you're good enough by the you know, four or five weeks we've been together. 
and the relational stuff, all that's, and I choose you, and hey, will you marry me after six weeks? And I look at my daughter, and I look at your daughter, and I just go, you are worth so much more than that to your heavenly Father. Do you have any idea how much God loves you? And I know Jesus loves that bachelor, but some days I'd like to just put that bachelor in a headlock and squeeze his head until it pops. Teach him a lesson. But that's not right, so i got to get over that. But I want to look at our daughters and our women and our young women and say, God did not create you to be loved that way, but to be loved so much better. I think about our men that are watching. And men, I'm going to talk a little bit more about us next week, so make sure you tune back in. But maybe for you, it's like, hey, i got to be at work, and i got to work extra, and i got to make more. And your wife is like, hey, where are you? And your kid's like, Dad, we haven't seen you forever. And you're like, yeah, but i got to work, and i got to accomplish, and i got to do, and i got to get everything perfect. All along, your heavenly Father would say, yeah, but time is ticking away. And your kids will not be kids very much longer. And you need to provide for your family, but I'm just telling you, you're going to miss these days. Do not find your security. Do not find your security in what you do or how much you make or how well you do it. It is a dangerous road to travel. And, and I think about us parents, which I am one. My kids are grown. But I think parents, there's this expectation that you're a good parent. If you overschedule your kids in every stinking activity and every facet of life that you possibly can. And you're not a good parent if you don't have your kids in every activity. And I just wonder if it would be helpful to think, listen, me being a perfect parent is not the goal. Me being engaged with my children is the goal. And sharing love and faith with them to cut out a couple sports and a couple other programs and decide we're going to spend time around the dinner table as a family. We're going to take some vacation together. We're going to be together in the backyard. And isn't it true? I've heard a lot of parents say this. And I wish I'd have done this better as a dad when my kids were younger. That this time we're all in the house has revealed two things. One, we're not real great at being together. And two, we need to get better at being together. And your heavenly father would look at you as a parent and look at your children and say, listen, your value is not going to come from all the activities in this world. It's going to come from me loving you and then you loving the people in your life and your children and your spouse. It's the answer for insecurity. Again, it's why Paul said, I can do all things. Parenting, growing up, being a man, being a woman in the right way. Through Christ, in Christ, identity with Christ, who gives me strength. So to wrap up our, our time um, this morning, and I'm just about done. I wanted to share with you just an old poem, which just turned into a story, I think even a song, that I was told when I first um, restarted my relationship with Jesus so many years ago. And I haven't talked about this story in a long time, but the story goes like this. There, there was an auction. And at this auction, they were selling all kinds of important goods, cars, furnitures, all kinds of important things. And it was a hot summer afternoon, and all these people had gathered outside this home for this auction. And they got to almost to the end. And the auctioneer's on a platform, and one of the last pieces of junk item was an old fiddle, an old violin that was in a box. And the auctioneer holds up the violin, and he says, listen, I, I know it's broken, I know it's chipped, it doesn't look very pretty, it's dusty, it, it, it's just rough, but who'll give me a dollar for this? Who, who'll give me two dollars? Who'll give me three, three dollars? And there was a silence over the crowd, and the weather was hot, and people wanted to go home, but they needed to wrap up this whole auction, and so there was silence. 
until out of the back of the crowd walked this old man, walked up on the platform, he picked up the violin, he brushed it off, and he began to twist the tuning knobs and tighten the bow until he got it just where he thought it should be. And he took this old, ugly, what looked like a piece of junk, and he held it up under his chin, and he began to play this violin. And what came out of that violin made everybody's mouth drop wide open. It was the most beautiful, magical music they had ever heard. And he played for two, three, maybe four minutes as the sound washed over the people and he swayed back and forth under the beautiful melody. And when he was done, he just simply put the violin down on the table and walked out of the crowd. The, the auctioneer picks up the violin and he says, hey, who will give me 1000 $2,000 or $3,000 for this. And the people erupted. And they bid and they bought and they were zealous for this violin, which turned out to be a masterpiece. And after the whole auction was done, someone asked the auctioneer, hey, hey what made the value of the violin change from a couple dollars to thousands of dollars? And the auctioneer smiled and he said, when people saw what looked to be like a worn out instrument in the hands of a master violinist, they realized the worth of the violin. And it became so valuable. My friends, you may be sitting at home or wherever you are today and you may feel a little like that violin. I'm worn out. I'm tired. I haven't done it all right. I'm not a good parent or a spouse. All those things. You just need to know that in Christ, when he has you in his hands, your worth is beyond measure. You are so valuable because you are his child. You are his beloved. And the invitation to you is if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that if you put your trust in Christ today, you would belong fully to God. And what God owns is precious because God does not make junk. And he loves you. My friends, I'm going to sing a song, or I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song real quick that talks about the amazing love for God for you and I, and I hope that washes over you in an incredible way. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for these words that Paul writes to us, that in Christ we can do and be all things. And thank you for putting a stamp of worth on our life that we are valuable to you, Jesus. And we know that because you traded your very life for ours. And we are so grateful for that. For anybody that feels rejected today, anybody feels like there isn't value in their life, that feels insecure, I pray that you holding us in your hands would push out the rejection and the insecurity. And it would be replaced by love. And it would allow us, Jesus, to love others in incredible ways. Thanks for this precious gift of your word this morning and your love for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.